Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to Squanderlust, the podcast about the emotional side of money, why our actions aren't always as good as our intentions and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Martha Lawton. Before we start, here is my regular begging slot. This time it's reviews. We work really hard to bring in awesome guests with unique perspectives so you can gain insights that will help you to have a happier and healthier relationship with money. We want to do this for more people and you can help us to do that by writing us a review. If you're using Apple Podcasts or CastBox or GoodPods or many other apps, that should be really easy from inside your app. Otherwise, please consider finding us on Podchaser and reviewing us there. It really makes a difference. Okay, let's get on with the show. Today, I'm completely fangirling because I'm talking to someone who has been on my dream guest list for ages. She's a best-selling writer, speaker, podcaster, and so much more. It's Ortega Uagba. Welcome, Ortega. Hi, good to be on the show. For any unfortunate listeners who don't already know your work, can you tell everybody a bit about yourself? Yeah, sure, of course. So I am a writer, as you said. I actually started out my career working in advertising. That's what I did after uni. But then after about five years, I decided to leave that behind and strike out on my own. So that was a combination of writing. But also I set up a platform at the time, Women Who which I operated up until uh, the end of last year, up until 2020, which was essentially just sort of like a community connecting creative working women, especially those who are self-employed or sort of doing non-traditional things and just a place for us to share resources and ideas and, and to connect with other like-minded women. And at the same time as running that, I was also writing. So I published my first book, Little Black Book, a toolkit for working women in 2017. And that was sort of like a, I guess, a handbook kind of providing career insights and advice for women, especially those who are maybe just starting out in their careers or quite early on. And then last year, I published a long essay about race called Whites on Race and Other Falsehoods, which was, you know, sort of partly a response to a lot of the conversations about racism and whiteness that happened in light of George Floyd being killed last year. And then sort of on top of all of this, I've also been working on my book, We Need to Talk About Money, uh, for a couple of years now, which is a sort of part memoir and part cultural commentary about money and my relationship with it and, you know, what that says about the world we live in and kind of bringing in broader experiences and women's experiences in particular. 
And so that sort of is what I'm doing now. And then on the side of that, I do various other things like podcasting and speaking and occasional bit of uh, brand consulting. So, yeah, that's me. Amazing. Um, I have no idea how you fit it all in. <laughs> me neither, to be honest. <laughs> um, so your book title is a really great place to start. Um, and I guess my first question is, why do we need to talk about money? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And for me personally, the reason I decided to write this book actually happened in the run up to the publication of my first book, Little Black Book. So this was back in 2017, kind of spring of 2017. And, you know, a very exciting period professionally. You know, I'm setting up interviews and I'm doing events and getting write ups. And there's all this kind of buzz that goes with being a first time author. And while I was really excited about that, I also remember walking home one evening and just feeling very anxious about money and my career because at that point I'd only been freelance for about a year and a bit, a year and a half, and I was still kind of figuring out the whole money side of things. Wasn't really sure what shape my career was going to take, wasn't really sure whether I'd be able to make a sustainable living, you know. At that point I was earning money, but it wasn't a huge amount, and, you know, I was still living at home with my parents at that point. And I just remember walking home one evening and just feeling very anxious and just sort of realising, I was like, I can't be the only person who has this kind of tumultuous emotional relationship with money. And I just wanted to write something that might start conversations about that, because I think that money is, you know, one of the last taboos within, especially within British society, but generally in the world. And we don't talk about it enough. And that leads to uh, a lot of inequalities that kind of perpetuates a lot of existing inequalities. Um, I think a lack of information about money and how it works and how people feel about it, how people got it, why some people have it, why some people don't have it, allows for a lot of imbalances. And so in many ways, I wrote this book partly in the interest of kind of having honest conversations about it, but also in the interest of equity. You know, I think that's really important. And I think one of the ways that we can achieve that is by sort of starting to question a lot of the dynamics and a lot of the structures that are responsible for how money is, you know, apportioned out within society. Fantastic. Yes, um, I completely agree. Um, it's so obvious that there are certain people who benefit from us not talking about money because it... Well, firstly, because it, it leaves other people afraid and disempowered in conversation with them. And there are some people who, who kind of play on that, both finance professionals and other people as well, who take a kind of, well, you can just leave that money stuff to me sort of approach. You know, oh, don't, don't, don't worry about money. I'll deal. I've got, I, you know, I understand it. So I'll deal with it for you. Yeah, and I think the biggest example of that of people who benefit from us not talking about money tends to be employers. So they benefit from the fact that people feel awkward about advocating for themselves, for negotiating, even just sharing salaries with their co-workers. You know, there are so many companies, especially when you kind of work like a low-wage service job where, you know, you're directed not to discuss money with your colleagues or not to discuss your pay rate with your colleagues. And that is not in your best interest, it's in the best interest of the employers so that they can kind of disguise any inequalities or they can disguise the fact that they're generally underpaying people. And I, I do think kind of talking about money on an individual level is just really important for better understanding where you are in the system and what has contributed to your 
specific, I guess, station within society or position within society, if you want to think about it that way. But it tends, it tends not to be harmful, you know, talking openly about money. Like I generally think for the most part, good things tend to come from it. Mostly, I mean, I always want to be careful and say that just talking about money isn't necessarily going to change your material reality. And I think mm. it's important to say that because I do think there's a little bit of a trend now to kind of say, oh, just talk about money and things improve. And that <laughs> just isn't the case. Mm. But I do think talking about it can often change how you feel about it and change your emotional response. That for me has kind of been the biggest benefit of talking openly about money. Um, and then, you know, yeah, allowing me to more kind of powerfully advocate for myself and to do that from an informed position, I think has kind of been a secondary benefit as well. Yeah, I, I'm a big supporter of the Show the Salary campaign, which says that we should be uh, demanding that employers show salaries in job advertising because mm. um, if you just put competitive salary, like, what does that mean? It's so easy to rip off somebody who's unconfident in having that conversation if you just put competitive right. salary in there. Right. And it's kind of bonkers that, you know, job vacancies aren't advertised with a salary openly declared because at the end of the day, that's why you're doing the job. Mm. You're not just doing it for the fun. You're It's a financial <laughs> transaction in which you work in order to be paid. So that is, you know, a key concern for most people going into a job. But I think a lot of employers kind of capitalise on the fact that talking about money is kind of perceived as gauche or rude. And then you're supposed to kind of quite delicately bring up potential salary like towards the end of the interview process when actually that might be the core deciding factor in whether or not you want this job if you find out that a marketing manager job at x company is being paid ten thousand pounds less than whatever the going rate is you're probably not going to want to apply for that job so why don't they just save everyone the time yeah yeah absolutely absolutely um and as you say it, it completely plays into to other types of inequality um, it, it allows for that sort of disguising of where discrimination is going on. So, yeah, it's, it's mm. really, really not great. And I, I mean, I remember my um, my father referring to certain people as money grubbing. And, and mm. I know that that comes from a place of uh, prejudice around like there are good ways to have money and there are not good ways to have money. And if you have mm. money because you already owned assets and those assets are producing income or growth and investment growth, then somehow that's better money than um, than money you have worked for, money you had to hustle for in some way. And it's ugh. at the at the time, you know, that was the household I grew up in, and I didn't question it. But now I feel quite disgusted thinking about that because it's so obviously prejudice. Yeah, I mean, I think some of those attitudes, and not necessarily speaking about your no. father, but just more generally, a lot of those attitudes are often tied to class. So I think. Often people who don't have to worry about money and who have money are fine with not talking about money openly. Although I have to say that people who have money tend to look after their money very well. That's oh, yeah. how they became rich and how they stay rich. So there is also a bit of a kind of, you know, obfuscation of the reality of it. So they say, oh, it's, you know, impolite to talk about money over the dinner table. But these are people who you know, are talking about money in great depth with their financial advisors and, you know, with estate planning and that sort of thing. So I definitely think there is a kind of element of class snobbery when it comes to talking about money openly and it's treated as gauche that somebody who needs to work for money and who needs to think, you know, very hard about their financial situation, that's seen as, you know, somehow indecent 
when actually it's just coming out of sheer necessity. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And by the way, you're right about my father. Um, I, don't, I don't mind <laughs> dropping him in the soup over this one. Like, that was absolutely a snobbish comment of his. Um, yeah. And, you know, it speaks to, you know, his background, which is not the same as my mum's background, and actually brings me on to something um, that I was going to talk about with you that I really found interesting and related to in the book, which is you talk about class being more complicated than people think it is, that social class is not simply sort of a straight line, a ladder. Um, mm. and it, it's possible to have multiple different indicators about yourself that relate to different uh, sort of different social classes as they're viewed in the UK. Um, I'd love to hear a bit more about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, considering that we live in a society that is so class obsessed, you know, Britain is a country of class obsessed people. We have surprisingly rigid definitions of class and it's very much you're either working class or you're middle class or you're upper class. And people are often kind of asked to put themselves in one category, even though your class might actually change over the course of your life. And I think as that relates to me, you know, I'm very conscious of the fact that there are certain factors about my background and my upbringing that might designate me as working class. You know, I come from an immigrant background who moved to this country at the age of five, didn't have a lot of money, grew up in a council estate. Those are things that might imply that I'm working class and and maybe do make me working class. But at the same time, I also have two very well-educated parents who both have degrees. You know, there was a lot of culture there was a lot of cultural capital in my house, which is also a huge factor in determining your class. You know, for me, university wasn't an optional thing. It was just the path that I was definitely going to end up at. My parents are really big on education and that is, you know, a huge element of your class makeup. And also our position changed over time and my position has changed over time. You know, I am now a homeowner and I work in an industry and have a type of employment that very clearly categorizes me as middle class so I try not to I when people ask me about my own specific class I kind of have to give a bit of a story because mm. that has changed um and I I think people are kind of resistant to that and there is a little bit of um yeah I think people are really resistant to that generally yeah I mean the the I'm trying to remember the phrase I think it was Reginald D Hunter said that social class is a way of white people being racist against white people. Like it's intended to be a rigid hierarchy. And so when it becomes more flexible and it becomes less um, less clear cut what your position is and you might move between classes, then it confuses people. Like this just straight up confuses people. <laughs> yeah, and I think even though generally you and I and a lot of people might see social mobility as an inherently good thing, there are people who don't necessarily feel that way, even if it's subconscious, because that threatens the established hierarchy and that threatens their established position. And so they're very keen to differentiate themselves from other people by virtue of quite superficial markers, like what supermarket they go to, what kind of school they went to, what the accent is like. And I find that just really horrendous, to be honest. Yeah, no, I, I completely, completely agree. Um, there are a lot of people I don't really have much contact with from where I grew up, um, in mm. part because of that kind of thing I just find it very very uncomfortable and distasteful um mm. and, it, and it's very obvious if you're uh if you if you sort of fit in and you hear the conversation that goes on 
mm. um, behind closed doors on some of that stuff? Definitely. I think I definitely operate and move in very kind of solidly middle class spaces now and have done, honestly, for most of my life. You know, I went to a private school, admittedly on a scholarship, but I still went to a private school. And then I went to Oxford and now I work in media. So all very middle class and upper middle class environments. And so I do see the kind of slightly scathing way people talk about council estates or talk about certain areas not realising that that is my own background and kind of assuming that I hold similar views to them. And, you know, I guess I'm sort of in disguise in that sense. And certainly when I was younger, I didn't necessarily have the courage to push back on that stuff. But, you know, now that I'm older and kind of know myself a bit more and, and much more open about my own background, it's, I don't know, I kind of quite like making people feel awkward and kind of saying, okay, so why why do you think that about council estates and, and what experience do you have of them? And, and could you just unpack that a little bit more? Because often you find that people don't have anything to substantiate their prejudices with and, and, and feel very embarrassed. So that's, that's something that I kind of take a bit of pleasure in. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Have a little bit of fun. We're going to take a little break there. And when we come back, we will go a bit more into the personal memoir side of things. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome back. We're talking to Ortega Yuagba about why, especially in contemporary Britain, we need to talk about money. So you decided to tell a personal story as well as the sort of cultural commentary um, why did you decide to to make it personal? I think that actually came quite instinctively, but I also felt that it was important to... I didn't want the book to be dry, essentially. Mm. And I think when you're talking about these kind of broader thematic issues, it's really helpful to illustrate them with personal examples and personal anecdotes and just really bring them to life. So me bringing in an example of something that happened to me at work that is an example of, say, emotional labour or invisible labour or discrimination, 
I think that just tends to resonate a bit better with people and allows them to also apply that to their own lives in a way that isn't necessarily as possible when you're solely focused on commentary and third party narratives. So for me, that was just about kind of bringing people along on the journey a little bit more. And also because I had a lot of material to kind of (laughs) illustrate um, those various themes with. And so it, it just, it really did just come naturally. But at the same time, I didn't want the book to be entirely about me. Like, look, I'm 30 years old. I haven't lived a particularly extraordinary life. I, I don't necessarily know that a memoir that was just about my own life would be as interesting as, say, Drew Barrymore or <laughs> Michelle Obama. Like, I am not that sort of public figure or, or figure of interest. So I knew from the get-go that the book wasn't going to be just about me. And, the, you know... I don't really have interest in talking about myself personally unless it's in service to something else. And so I definitely feel as though all of the memoir bits of the book are in service to making much broader points. Yeah, I I think you're right in about making it relatable and applicable in people's own lives. I Mm. am, you know, uh, some years older than you, a little bit over (laughs) a decade. Um, And obviously I come from a really different background. I grew up in rural Oxfordshire. Um, and, you know, I have um, quite different experiences, but um, I still related a lot to the things you had to say. I related a lot to a lot of what you said to say about um, starting your first job and about um, the experience of being at university and some of the kind of um, laddish behaviour that you see mm. at university and I related to a lot of what you had to say about toxic work environments um, that mm. was oh yeah that brought like some memories there are some really raw sections honestly in the book was it mm. was it hard to write? Actually no um, my kind of rule of thumb entering into this and I am lucky enough that I have a few friends who have written memoirs who have written you know personally for a number of years and so I definitely did talk to them about how best to approach it and I only wrote about things that I was happy to have out in the world and also things that I'd processed so things that were kind of finished and behind me and weren't still raw so it was actually you know I I found myself at times feeling quite angered especially when I kind of went back over you know so in the book I have literal quotes of text messages and messages Mm. that I was sending to my best friend when I was working in a particularly toxic environment. And I literally went on to, at the time, we used to talk on Facebook Messenger. So I literally downloaded all of our messages from that period of time and went through them as a way of kind of refreshing my memory of what was happening because I was literally talking to him like on a daily basis and being like, this happened and that happened Mm. and that was really useful. Um, And I did find myself quite appalled Mm by certain things, certain memories that I'd forgotten, things that had been said to me, things that had been done. Um, so I guess my over, I guess my overwhelming feeling was sometimes just of kind of quite righteous anger. Mm. Um, but in terms of, you know, those particular scenarios, I don't know, I didn't find it difficult to write in that sense. Um, I think the only thing that was difficult was for me, in order to kind of talk about how I feel about money I just had to think a lot and really kind of unpack where I am with money emotionally and psychologically and and why I behaved in certain ways in my 20s and why I felt certain things and I just knew that I had to be really honest like I don't necessarily think that I always come off particularly graciously in parts of the book (laughs) but 
it was important to me that I talk about the negative emotions and like envy and jealousy and, and I don't know, maybe snobbery. I don't think I was snobby, but you know, any kind of negative, you know, opinions that I had as well as the more positive, you know, I, I didn't write this book to kind of self mythologize. I wrote it in order to be honest. And I hope that that will come across and that people will therefore find it much more relatable. I, I actually really enjoy that. Um, maybe I just spend too much time on Twitter and other bits of social media, but the, the nuance of your saying, I experienced these complicated emotions around this thing. I was not always a good person or, you know, good person, whatever. Um, but I wasn't always... Um, the, gracious. Yeah, gra oh, gracious is a great way of putting it. Yes, mm. about this. That's... that. Yeah, it does make you more relatable, but it also adds layers to what you're saying. It adds the nuance, the reality of that experience, which is when you're experiencing um, pain or you're experiencing uh, unfair situations, then yes, you know, you, you're not always going to be gracious because being gracious in some ways comes almost from it comes from having processed things or it comes from a place of privilege. Like you have to have something to be generous with sometimes, mm, I mm, think. Definitely. And I think that's just how most people are. <laughs> like, I think, I don't know if I'd kind of presented this kind of saintly Mother Teresa kind of depiction of myself. It was just, it would just have been very obviously false. Like I, I don't feel ashamed of anything that's in the book and I feel quite proud about most of it, to be honest. Um, even the more negative sides of things because that's just real, isn't mm. it? Like that—that that is how people feel, and and I felt pretty confident that other people would relate to some of my more kind of negative emotions and more negative feelings and and behaviour. So, I yeah, I don't know. I I, I guess I'm also quite thick-skinned, <laughs> but I I wasn't really that worried about that at all. Good, yeah. I I am interested in um, something you bring up in the book about the requirement to commodify ourselves in the modern economy via a personal brand i mean you were talking about having had conversations with other people you know who've written memoirs or written about themselves um and i was interested in your thoughts about how writing a memoir as part of a cultural commentary fits in in that kind of requirement to personal brand idea yeah that's a really good question i was very very careful when i was writing it as i've said to just be honest and to resist the temptation to kind of airbrush out elements of my life or to present it as a kind of personal branding mechanic. I think the personal branding certainly comes in when you're actually plugging and promoting mm -hmm. a book. And while I try to be as, you know, hashtag authentic <laughs> as I possibly can in, in most areas of my life, I'm aware of the fact that there is you know, perception created by social media and by the media and by interviews and by podcasts that it's just always going to be slightly removed from the reality and it's going to be a slightly kind of packaged up version of yourself. And I try to resist that to an extent, as I say, by being just quite sort of consistent mm -hmm. and honest. And I don't think, you know, I don't think my friends look at my social media feeds and think that they're greatly at odds with what I'm like in real life and actually I think you know having friends who obviously follow me on social media is quite like a good check <laughs> because I think they would just say something if you know things don't look realistic mm -hmm. or if I like post something about getting up early and they're like no you don't you lazy sod and I'm like well actually well first of all I do actually get up early these days but you know they'll say stuff like that mm. um 
And I think that kind of helps stop you from straying too far into kind of self-commodification. But on the topic of self-commodification, mm. I think especially as a writer or as a creative, there is an element of that that is necessary or at least foisted on you by external forces because, you know, you end up selling yourself, mm. you know. So there's obviously the book, which is a product in many ways that, you know, there are commercial interests in writing a book and, and you know, you have a publishing deal mm-hmm. and there are people who are commercially invested in its success. And so you do have to think about it from a kind of like a marketing and promotional point of view. But I feel fairly confident that what you see is what you get with me. And I try and also be quite honest about the less kind of glamorous sides of my life or my more kind of unsavoury thoughts <laughs> or actions or things like that. Just... Yeah, just because, I don't know, I, I don't really love the kind of very sanitised um, versions of ourselves that a lot of people feel compelled to, to present on social media. And also, it just wouldn't work for me. I think that's the thing as well. It just wouldn't work. Like, I I am a chatty Cathy. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> I don't think I can kind of pretend to be someone I'm not very successfully for mm. a prolonged period of time. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, but, yes. Uh, again, I relate. Um I wanted to to talk about sort of I guess the other the other end of of that uh, commodification of of self and commodification of um, our experiences, which is that you also write about how uh, people of color, particularly Black people's pain, can be commodified and packaged and sold, and some of the conflicts that come out of that for Black people mm. who may or may not be the ones doing the selling. Um, and you write about your own experiences as a black woman in the workplace and, and just in general in in London, in the UK. Um, can you talk a bit about that as well? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something I became massively aware of as I transitioned into writing and journalism, so after I left advertising. And I'm always grateful for the fact that I did that in my kind of mid to late 20s as opposed to in my early 20s because I'd had a bit of time to mature, I'd had a bit of time to kind of figure out what my personal boundaries were were I also wasn't reliant on writing for income because after I left advertising I went freelance and I'd consult for brands and so I did have a bit more liberty to kind of pick and choose what I wrote because I noticed straight away especially kind of 2015 2016 and you know to an now a lot of media outlets only wanted and still only want to commission black or you know people of color writers in as much as they are willing to kind of carve off little bits of their identity and little bits of their trauma for clicks. Mm. And it's something that just instantly just made me feel uncomfortable. And again, I think I'm lucky that I was a bit older because I think I had the benefit of hindsight to think, or I had enough perspective to realise that in years to come, I might not necessarily feel comfortable about putting my experiences out in the world in that way and it's why I'm also grateful to be able to write books because it's a lot more controlled and I'm allowed a lot more control and I'm allowed to kind of craft my narratives and there isn't the same editorial interference with writing like an 80,000 word book as there is when you're writing kind of like a 1200 word article for a digital media outlet where the measure of success is kind of clickability and and tweetability Um, and it rankles Mm -hmm. you know and often these requests aren't necessarily coming from a bad place. They're often coming from kind of white commissioning editors who want to 
offer up more diverse viewpoints, but they make the mistake of only allowing people of colour to talk about their identity and their marginalisation. So they, they won't commission, you know, an essay from a black writer about wild swimming, yeah. for instance. Like, they will always have to be wild swimming as a black woman, or they mm-hmm. will just have to be writing about their experiences as a black woman. And I think that really hems us in. And I think I also see a lot of younger writers feeling that's the only way to break into the industry and to an extent it kind of is like I see myself as a bit of an anomaly in that actually the first two books I sold even though they came out in a jumbled order so but I sold Little Black Book mm. and then I sold We Need to Talk About Money and neither of those books place race at the centre or were about race and I then felt comfortable pitching and writing Whites which was the third book I sold um, safe in the knowledge that my publisher kind of values me irrespective of my contribution to the discourse around racism and that they will then go on to commission me to write about things that aren't race. You know, there was no pressure from them. Like I came to them with this idea and they were happy to publish it. And that for me was really important because I also see a lot of, uh, you know, black writers and black journalists commissioned to write a first book about race and then they never get a second book deal. Mm. And that really pisses me off. Understandably. Um, so I think there's a real problem with how publishing and media kind of commodifies the black experience, but is only interested in diverse writing when it adheres to a very specific narrative. And it's, you know, it's something that I've spoken about a fair bit um, online, um, something that I've kind of written about briefly. I think I kind of touched on it in whites. It's probably something that I'll write about at length. But yeah, it's something that I also write about in the book mm. Mm. yeah I used to know uh, Bim Adewumi mm. um, we haven't been in touch for a little while because she's um, gone to the States and become wildly successful um, but I think she's a great example of somebody who has been able to step into her own niche which is not just writing about race and I know she did that incredibly deliberately I remember her talking about you know ju- she wants to write about pop culture and she wants to talk about pop culture and yeah. You know, she's she's really um, did not want to end up just doing the race beat all of yeah. the time, and she wanted to talk about what brings her joy. And I'm I think it's fantastic that she's been able to do that. But I agree, it's something that's so much more challenging than it should be. Um, yeah, it's not. Yeah, she's you know one of not many people who I think managed to make that transition. And being on the race beat is exhausting mm-hmm. because they are rarely increasingly more so now I think black writers are kind of given the space to write about black joy and positive aspects of black culture but a lot of writing about race is inherently tied to racism and whiteness and those aren't fun or enjoyable conversations to have they're necessary conversations to have but they're not always enjoyable and so I have always been quite deliberate in what I will and won't write about just kind of for Mm self-preservation You know, not even about not wanting to be pegged in, but also for self-preservation. I'm like, I don't always want to write about a hot take about whatever traumatic thing has gone viral in relation to black people. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you have to protect your own well-being, your own mental well-being um, mm. and not constantly be in that space completely. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely get that. So I wanted to come back to... Uh, something you were talking about, you touched on earlier and you said was actually one of the difficult things about writing the book, which is that the story begins and ends with 
your feelings about money, where those came from and sort of where you are now with them. Um, and I was I was really interested in that that journey a little bit. Could you talk about that for our listeners, please? Yeah, I mean, a key kind of theme of the book is the fact that, especially during my teens and my 20s, I had a lot of anxiety about money and often behaved quite irrationally. So the thing that I've always said is that I've always been good with money, but I haven't necessarily always felt good about money. So I feel quite lucky that I've always been pretty financially literate. And a lot of that comes from my parents who were really careful to kind of teach us about money and, and, you know, set some really good examples about how to manage money and always kind of urged me to be financially responsible and financially independent. And I think I'm so grateful for that. I think that in itself is a privilege Mm. and that in itself is a form of inheritance that actually doesn't get talked about a lot. Um, And it served me really well. But I think just by virtue of money sometimes having having been a bit tight when I was younger, especially when we first moved to the UK, it did kind of leave me with a sort of abiding anxiety about I guess running out of money Mm. and kind of going without and there was a lot of fear and I acted in some you know fairly rational ways like I I think one of the examples I give in the book is when I was about 27 or 28 when I was self-employed by this point I was living at home with my parents I had a decent amount of savings and I was earning you know sort of like a decent amount and yet I'd set myself this monthly budget I can't remember what it was it was something like a couple of hundred pounds and that's in London. Mm. And that was to kind of cover everything. So my transport, socialising, you know, like it just wasn't realistic. And so I was really just denying myself any kind of small pleasure because I was determined to save as aggressively as I possibly could. And it was making me miserable. Mm. And it was also costing me money because at one point I wrapped up a bunch of, you know, unplanned overdraft charges because I was running out of money at the end of each month. I was always going to my overdraft. Right. And so I paid these charges and then I was like, you actually have enough money to not be going into your overdraft. Mm. So now this budget is actually costing you money. And that's one thing I don't like to do is to waste money. Yeah. And that was like a real turning point for me. And I was like, if you just allow yourself a little bit more each month, yeah. you can live a bit more comfortably. You won't be paying these overdraft charges. You'll feel a bit happier. You're working really hard, but not allowing yourself to enjoy any of the benefits of that hard mm. work. And it's making you miserable. And so I think I bumped up a little bit, you know, gave myself a little pay rise. Yeah. And my life just instantly just became a bit more comfortable. I think I, I allowed myself to go on like a really nice holiday mm-hmm. and just as a kind of like reward to myself to be like, look, you work hard. You're in a good financial position. You don't need to be as tight fisted with yourself. And I was always tight fisted with myself, not with other people. Mm-hmm. Like I, was, um, I think I've always been careful to kind of be as generous as I'm in a position to be with other people. Um. But I would still panic over like unexpected bills mm. that I could afford mm. or unexpected expenses that I could afford mm. um, to the point of, you know, literally freaking out and like bursting into tears. And I think a lot of the work I've done around my mentality with money, especially in the past couple of years, has been around allowing myself to kind of loosen the purse strings a little bit and to enjoy my money at the same time as being sensible with it. And it is possible to do both those things at the same time. And yeah, that has been really transformative. You know, I'm not perfect on that front yet, but I'm way, way better than I used to be. And like, I actually allow myself to kind of buy nice things now mm-hmm. and to go out for dinners and to get Ubers home. And I know to a lot of people, 
that probably sounds counterintuitive that the way that I've gotten better with money is by becoming objectively kind of worse with it and by being a bit more you know profligate but I for me that was a really necessary transition that has made me feel more relaxed and you know I felt really proud of myself like a couple of months ago so I, I just uh, I, I bought a flat towards the end of last year and on like day two <laughs> there was a gas leak mm. and I ended up having to call out a gas engineer and you know he fixed it yeah. but it cost 600 pounds oh. and in years gone by that would have sent me absolutely spiraling mm even though I had the money to pay for it, because, you know, I knew that home owning would be expensive. I knew my place needed a bit of work. I knew there'd be unexpected bills, so I had money set aside for it. Mm. And years and years gone by, that would have really just sent me spiralling. But I felt so proud of myself that I was just like, okay. Like, I was like, damn, it could have bought me, like, a really nice pair of shoes or, you know, a really <laughs> nice handbag or whatever, or, you know, some really nice meals out. But I was just like, okay. And like, I felt really grateful that I was even in a position to pay it without it affecting my day to day life, to be perfectly honest, especially, you know, this is October, this was early 2021. Mm. So this was after a year where so many people had faced financial struggles, where my own income had taken a hit, like the pandemic absolutely did affect me as a freelancer. Mm. And so my overwhelming film feeling was just one of, of gratitude and I did kind of reflect, you know, after that was over and after I'd paid the invoice, I was like, wow, you've come really far because three or four years ago, you would have still have been in a position to pay that bill because you had savings, but you would have freaked out about it and been upset about it for ages. And as it was, I just kind of forgot about it within a, a day or two. And I know that that's a big privilege being able to afford an unexpected expense of £600, which is not a small amount, but I just felt really proud of myself for for kind of being able to just kind of suck it up essentially yeah it's the difference between being sort of financially competent and actually having financial well-being where mm, where exactly that where your your financial situation is contributing to your well-being as a whole um mm. and and that's that's so powerful um i, I i'm actually oh it makes me so emotional when i hear somebody has has done this so they've they've got to this much better place with their money um <laughs> do you do you have any uh any tips for our listeners who might have um some of those feelings and they they are they know they're in that position of being very anxious and and where a sudden bill would throw them like that even if they had the money i always find it helps to write things down um so when i kind of have like a cloud of anxiety which was often related to money I would sort of write it down so I could look at the situation rationally. So if it's like you're feeling kind of anxious about this bill and I would say, you know, really write it down like I have got to pay an unexpected bill of £600 but here is what I know rationally that I can afford it or I'll have to trim £100 off my monthly budget for the next six months to afford it or whatever. But that is doable because I've also been squandering £100 a month on Deliveroo and just really kind of... I think for me, and maybe it's because I'm a writer, but it really helps mm. to get things out of my head and onto paper and almost kind of make like like pros and cons lists or just kind of weigh things up really rationally and just read it over and over again. And I've generally found that to be really effective and I kind of return to that if I'm kind of having like a sort of anxiety flare up and 
I still do that and like you know especially during my 20s I think I've kind of gotten to a place where I instinctively kind of know what my budget is and I stick to it like I was saying to a friend the other day that I don't really check my bank balance that much and she was like oh wow rich bitch and I was <laughs> like no it's just because like I've really kind of intuitively learned what I can and can't afford and I will mentally know if I've been out for two expensive meals this month and therefore should probably decline that invitation for the third until next month so I feel quite good about that but you know writing down if you feel out of control with money just kind of writing down your budget and going through all of your recent bank transactions you'll so often find things there that you hadn't realized you were spending money on or wasting money on and I find you know this is obviously dependent on you actually earning enough to cover your basic living costs because Mm, I'm quite cognizant of the fact that some people just do not earn enough money for that but I think often when you are in a decent financial position but still have a lot of anxiety it helps and it also helps to vocalize it and Mm. talk to a trusted friend who can kind of give you a bit of perspective but I find that allowing things to kind of fester in your head is kind of the worst thing you can do yeah yeah I would I would agree with that it's absolutely um when it's when it's all in your head you you can't tease apart what's real and what's not real um exactly whereas well and maybe it's because you're worried because you know in six months time your friend's getting married and you're gonna have to go to an expensive wedding whatever and it's like it can really help to just okay well how much am I gonna need for that and what dress can I re-wear and how can I kind of reduce costs like I I really tend to be like quite a rational person and I like to attach sums and figures to things and put it all in writing and essentially kind of make a plan of attack like that's kind of how I work with so many aspects of my work and and there's no reason why you can't apply that to money as well absolutely fantastic Uh, I want to finish again asking for a little bit more of your advice something on a topic that I absolutely cannot speak to but you are uh, one of the experts um what advice in in careers and and life and money do you have for other smart ambitious young black women um set benchmarks with your white colleagues mm-hmm. <laughs> um find out what your white colleagues are being paid um and not necessarily just your colleagues but people across the industry and a way that i found is quite a tactful way to kind of because you know a lot of people don't just don't like just being asked what they're earning outright but i find that it often helps to kind of volunteer information about your own salary and to be like, hey, I'm on 28,000. Do you think that's reasonable or ballpark fair for, you know, the position I'm in? You know, speak to a recruiter. Because I once found, uh, I was once at a job where I knew I was being underpaid, but I hadn't actually realised to what extent I was being underpaid. Mm. And I only found out because I spoke to a recruiter mm. and found out, you know, the level of the disparity. Because recruiters do have, like, a good view of the market, essentially. And you should be checking in with recruiters or other friends across the industry or your colleagues to make sure that you are at the right level and what you do next you know depends on so many factors whether you think that you can negotiate I always kind of recommend trying to negotiate whether you think okay I'm actually going to have to leave this job behind and try and you know get that salary bump in a new job or you know it depends it it's different for each person but I think just being really clear on what your position is because the number of people who don't realise they're being underpaid Mm. is a real problem and especially women and especially black women. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's kind of one of the key things you can do first of all and then you make a plan of action depending on your circumstances. Excellent. Amazing. Thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure talking with you. It's been 
so great to get an insight into your mind and your views. Um, I've just had a great time. Um, Thank you. Where can our listeners find you to get more Ortega? Yes, so I am on Twitter and Instagram um, at Otega Uagba. So that's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A. And my book, We Need to Talk About Money, is published by Fourth Estate on the 8th of July. And you can buy that from any good bookstore, from Waterstones, from Amazons, if that Amazon, if that's your persuasion, um, from indie bookstores, from Hive, from Bookshop, basically wherever books are sold. So yeah. we will, And it's also available in Audible. We will put a link to the book in the show notes for this episode so people can order it it is a bookshop.org affiliate link so it will support the show and independent bookstores um so that's our preference but you do you wherever you want to go um we're not going to blame you there might be some like secret side eye but you know <laughs> we'll be cool with it. it it's been such a pleasure having you on Ortega um you too thank it's you so been really much. lovely to chat to you thank you You've been listening to Squanderlust, the podcast about the emotional side of money with me, Martha Lawton. If you've enjoyed the show, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love one of those nice five-star reviews too. Or you can tell a friend about us, maybe somewhere on social media where we're at Squanderlust Pod. You can also find us at squanderlustpod.com where we put show notes, useful links and ways to support the show. Squandlust is sponsored by Wardour Studios in Fitzrovia, London, with production by David Smith, Alicia Cunningham, Charlie Brandon King and Tom Berry. Our theme music is by Wardour Studios and graphic design by Jason Reed. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.